Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 31, verses 17 to 55, with a message entitled, Why We Fear God. Let's join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading Genesis 31, verses 17 to 42. Here now, this is the word of God. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all he had and rose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. And God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods, and have you found all of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes." These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wage ten times. 
If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction in the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. This account that we have just read is the account which chronicles mistrust and intrigue, the possibility of battle and death, the love of idols, and of the real God. Since this is a long passage, and since the entire unit, in order to be understood, has to be preached as one passage, I can't look at every verse, but I can point out the major themes of what we've just read. The theme of this text is found in verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Now, I want you to pay attention to that phrase, the fear of Isaac. The Hebrew word here translated as fear is a very strong verb. You know, some translators suggest that it's better to take the word fear and translate it as dread. The idea is simply this. Jacob has come to realize that his father Isaac's God is the one who inspires fear or dread, even terror and dismay. It's for this reason alone that Laban could not destroy Jacob. And that's the theme of this passage. But it's here that many Christians have trouble. You know, some prefer only those attributes that speak of God's love or his compassion, of second chances, and of mercy. I mean, the idea of fearing God is foreign to some of us. And yet Proverbs 9 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, you can't get to the first base in wisdom, or you can't graduate from Wisdom 101 until you fear God. It was Oswald Chambers who wrote, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. You know, essentially, fearing God makes you into a courageous man or woman. Well, let's find out more. This section of scripture begins with Jacob and his family fleeing Laban, and in the process of doing so, Rachel stole her father's household gods. So I want us to consider this act from three vantage points. First, did you notice it doesn't say she stole the idols or the statues or the images. It says she stole the gods. You know, I've heard of kidnapping, but this is a bona fide case of godnapping. And now we should know that Moses records this incident in this way to get us to see how foolish this is. I mean, stealing God's mercy. Now, of course, as this story progresses, Laban in fury wants to know who has stolen the idols, and Rachel, who has stowed them in the saddlebags of her camel, and they must have been quite small, says she can't rise because she's having her period. And later, generations who read this account would have laughed at the idea that gods could be used as sanitary napkins. They would have said, hey, that's a good one. But let's look at it from a second vantage point. What would have motivated Rachel to do this? I mean, why? And the text doesn't tell us, but we can make some pretty educated guesses regarding her motive or her motives. You know, one motive is that the household gods represented something. You know, in the ancient world, the household gods were associated, you know, with good luck and the prosperity of the family. And also, idols were thought to protect the home and to offer her help in times of need. So, from that perspective, Rachel stole the gods because she thought there was danger ahead and she needed protection. 
But another motive might have been that Rachel thought that Laban would consult the household gods and find out where they had fled, and she was trying to take away his advantage. But we must discuss Rachel's taking of the household gods from another perspective, that is, what her actions would mean to her family. Later on in Genesis 35, verse 2, when Jacob wants to take his family to Bethel and to introduce them to the true God, this is what happens, and here I read the passage. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. The fact is that there were lots of these household gods in every family member's possession. It had become a snare to Israel. Now, for some of you who are listening to me, idols are a part of your culture. Your extended family has household gods. You know, I occasionally received emails and calls from people who say that they live with parents who have an idol in their home, and they say, should I fear that? And I say, no. But some of us come from cultures where there are no household gods, and we wonder, I mean, what's an idol to me? Now, on the one hand, an idol is a physical image that represents a deity or a god. But on the other hand, an idol is anything you trust in that replaces your trust in the true God. You may trust in luck. You might trust in your own abilities. You might trust in your mountains of money. You might trust in your own education, in your own intelligence. You might trust in the goodwill of others, that they're going to help you when things get rough. You might even trust in the government. But whatever you ultimately place your trust in, whatever you hope in, other than the one true God. Well, that's an idol. Now, in the context of this passage, should you ultimately trust in anything other than the dread of Isaac, you're an idolater. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean that we don't trust in other things. You know, we trust our doctor. We trust our financial advisor. We trust the airline company that make safe aircraft. We can go on and on. We need to trust in people, and we do. But if there's something you ultimately trust in, Rather than the one true God, you are an idolater. That's why Colossians 3 verse 5 says that covetousness is idolatry. You crave what's not yours by right because you think you can have confidence in that thing. Let me say two things. Idols offend the one true God. And second, idols will not deliver you in the day of trouble. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and special friends and musicians, The Weebs. You'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, laugh and be encouraged, and enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with your family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it out and get on board at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. It was John Kelvin who said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, an expert in inventing and manufacturing idols. 
in the face of the uncertainties of life, you know, in the reality of suffering, in the, in the eventuality of death, in the possibility of loss and danger, the human heart invents and manufactures one idol after another and tells itself, with this idol of mine, I'm going to be safe and I'm going to be content. But all of this is of no avail. Every idol is going to fail us in the end. They will be taken away from us and you'll be left with nothing but the anger of God. But that's Rachel. On her way in a long journey fraught with dangers, she steals her father's household gods. Don't judge her too harshly, for we've all done the same. But can you see that the fear of Isaac mocks us and says, your idols are no better than a sanitary napkin. They're unclean and they must be thrown away. And Jacob flees Laban. You know, our text tells us that it's the time of shearing sheep, which would have been an ideal time to flee. Everyone's busy and they hardly notice. He is three days ahead in his journey, and because our text says he flees from Padan Aram, let's just say at the time of his leaving, he's already three days ahead of Laban. So it does take Laban a week of hard riding with his mounted fighting men to catch up to Jacob. But on one of those nights, by his own accounting of things, Laban tells Jacob that Jacob's God has met with him. Now, as we've already learned, Laban's a liar. And Laban's angry enough to murder Jacob. And so I have to assume that, that Laban is understating this encounter. God did more than meet with him. God utterly terrified Laban. And Jacob seems to understand this immediately, for he calls his God the dread of the God of Isaac. And I think Jacob has it right. That encounter with God so terrified Laban that he was too frightened to harm Jacob. Now in this, I hear a promise God made to Jacob 20 years earlier at Bethel. Genesis 28 verse 15 records what God said to Jacob. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now it seems obvious at this point to remember that, that God has made great and precious promises to us, to every believer in Christ. You know, he's made promises of forgiveness and of heaven and promises of his divine meticulous care in every aspect of our lives, promises to answer every prayer that's prayed in the name of Jesus. In fact, you know, if you read Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Christ even promised that God would provide for all the basic necessities of our lives, including, you know, food and clothing. And just like God did to Jacob at Bethel, he has met with us in Christ. In Christ, listen, my dear believer in Christ. In Christ, God has bound himself to you with an unbreakable promise. Look at it this way. When you take out a loan to buy a house, you bind yourself to repay that loan on a monthly basis until the entire debt is repaid. You know, but things might happen. You might lose your job. You might become ill. Something might happen that would make it impossible to keep your promise. But God, I mean the living God, he's able to perform what he has promised to you. There is no lack of willingness or ability. Listen to the testimony of several old men at the end of their lives. First of all, Joshua in chapter 23, verse 14. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Or listen to King David's testimony at the end of his life in Psalm 37, 25. I've been young and now I'm old. 
yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. See, that's the contrast between God and idols. If you think about this rationally and realistically, it makes sense. Why would we possibly prefer idols to God? And yet, many do. And if Calvin is right that the human heart is an idol factory, well, how can that be? Well, the answer is that sin is irrational. I'm going to use Laban as an example of irrationality. Here I'm reading Genesis 31, 43 to 44. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. See, Laban's irrational. He makes four outrageous claims. First, he claims Jacob has driven away his daughters like captives using a sword. In other words, he can't conceive that his daughters would prefer their husband rather than him. And second, he claims that he would have sent Jacob away with a going away party if only Jacob had asked. (laughs) And then third, several times he calls Jacob's children my children. They belong to me. And fourth, he claims that all of Jacob's possessions and sheep actually belong to him as well. In fact, Laban's claims are so preposterous that in verse 37, Jacob even says, let's call all your people and my people together and let them decide who's telling the truth. But Laban will hear none of that. He believes Jacob was in the wrong. That leads to our question. Why is sin leading to idolatry so very irrational? Two reasons. First, It's always self-focused. Those who are overtaken by sin spend their entire lives consumed with themselves. By the way, we live in a culture that has elevated self-love and self-focus to be a virtue. And the result is selfishness, which leads us to believe that we're all victims of what someone else has done to us. We meditate on all our real and perceived hurts and we conceive that everyone else is responsible for the difficulties we face. No amount of reason can dissuade us. And second, listen, sin leading to idolatry is unconcerned with the truth. You know, for many, truth is not even an issue. The only thing that matters is self. So you see, when Jacob explains the situation to Laban, Laban doesn't even have the capacity to understand what Jacob is saying. He just says that everything that legally and rightfully belongs to Jacob is his. You know why idols are so popular? They promise us what we want out of life. You know, we set the rules, we set out what we want, and the idols promise to deliver. Of course, they don't, but that's what idols promise. And my dear friend, have you become an idolater? Do you want life on your terms, concentrating on your truths, motivated by the desires of your flesh? Are you in your fantasy making a bargain with God whom you assume will give you what your flesh dictates? My dear friend, flee idolatry. It's fantasy. Eventually, your idols will be taken from you, and when they are, you will be in despair. Fear God. Confess your sins to him. Submit to his will, and you'll find rest for your soul. Well, let's read the end of today's passage, verses 46 to 50. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. 
Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, and Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid. And Mitzpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. I find it fascinating that in his foggy brain, Laban in the end grasps one central truth. He says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, not his own idols, for he deep down knows they don't work. Rather, the God of Abraham be a witness between the two of us. In the end, even Laban knows that his idols don't work. They won't work, and he wants his daughters and grandchildren cared for when there's no one around to watch. And so if this man, who's accustomed to the fantasy of idols, for a brief moment enters the light and makes a covenant and an agreement that he can't manipulate, therefore he knows he needs a real God at that moment. And Laban calls the altar Jagar Sahadutha, which means witness heap or treaty or contract. The only one to assure this contract is the living God. And Jacob calls the altar Galid, which also means witness heap. It's in another language. The two men, it turns out, are actually comfortable in different languages. But this is the key. Laban names the altar as he does out of fear for the God who met him and threatened him. And Jacob out of gratitude to the God who rescued him. Now, my dear friend, here's the application. Do you want a relationship to God that's based on gratitude? Or do you want to be in fear or dread? But either way, recognize that's the true God. So John, would it be true to say even today we struggle with idolatry? Yeah, yeah. Idolatry never goes away. Never, never, never. You know, as long as human beings are sinful and as long as we will choose to bow the knee to something other than God, And that is, I think we can say, any time that we make something our highest joy and the affection of our hearts, uh, then we know with absolute certainty that this is our idol. And I, you know, as I've said here, idols are cruel things. They they will fail you. They'll be taken from you. They will break your heart. And uh, when all of that happens, um, you'll be left with nothing. So, you know, flee idolatry. That's the word. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow for more of amazing promises to dysfunctional people right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every once in a while, an opportunity arises that's just hard to pass up. In fact, that's what I want to share with you today. For the next number of weeks, a group dedicated to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, have provided a match pledge gift of $125,000. So what does that mean? It means that you have the opportunity to make such an incredible difference in this ministry moving forward. So for every dollar so graciously given right now, another dollar will be given to the ministry up to $125,000. That means if you call us today with a gift of $100, it becomes $200. Or a gift of $1,000, it becomes $2,000, multiplying the opportunity to sustain and grow this Bible teaching and engagement ministry. So please join us in maximizing this generous pledge by calling us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donating securely online at backtothebible.com. 
www.backtothebible.ca. Your gift now doubled will support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, and In Doubt.